This is Dan Fagella, and welcome to this bonus episode of the AI in Industry podcast. As you're aware, every Tuesday we have our normal scheduled episode of AI in Industry, and every month we have a theme. Here in September, we're focused on the theme of the ROI of AI. However, we work with a number of clients and clients that meet certain standards we will do interviews with, we will do content collaborations with, and that allows us to access a whole new range of new experts with interesting topics that might be useful for our listeners. Right now, we are working with a company called Kasako Research, who runs a number of events in the space of artificial intelligence hardware, and we're working with them on their Edge AI Summit, which is taking place in Mountain View, California, from November 20th to 21st, and that's this year in 2019. One of the speakers at Kasako Research's event is Jonathan Ross, who's the CEO and founder of Grok. Grok is an AI hardware company. And we speak with Jonathan on this particular episode about the topic of software-defined compute. Those of you who are tuned in right now have probably heard of GPUs as a kind of compute that companies might use to run specific AI-related applications. But software-defined compute is kind of a different paradigm, a different way of thinking about how compute can be optimized for machine learning functions. Jonathan talks about some of the pros and cons of GPUs and where software-defined compute might make its way into future machine learning applications. I asked Jonathan essentially, what is software-defined compute? I think his definition is rather good, uses a lot of solid analogies. And I also ask, where will it hit the ground running? Where is this potential paradigm of computing actually going to make a difference in different business applications. It's obviously a very nascent space, the space of AI hardware, but I think this introduction is more than helpful. Those of you who are doing ML at scale or who plan on doing so are going to have to learn about AI hardware, whether you want to or not, and I think this can be a useful introduction episode. So without further ado, this is a sponsored episode by Kasako Research. You're listening to me, Dan Vigella, with Jonathan Ross of Grok here on AI and Industry. So Jonathan, I wanted to start us off with a first topic just to tee up a term that I'm almost certain our audience uh, isn't intimately familiar with, which is software-defined compute. Can you define that? Sure. Um, and thanks for asking. So of course. the word software-defined uh, has been used a bit in hardware, in particular in networking. And recently it's been used by several different companies for describing what they're doing with accelerators. And the reason they talk about this is... There's a conception that when you're building custom ASICs for machine learning, that they may not be configurable or they may not be programmable. What it really means is for machine learning in particular, since it takes quite a long time to build a chip, two to three years, and the machine learning models are changing so rapidly that oftentimes you're unable to build a chip as quickly as the researchers are coming up with new techniques and new machine learning models. Yeah. And so... Yeah. And so to be to be able to build something that people want to use, you have to make it very flexible. And so software defined really just means that you're making a device that will be adaptable to what's coming in the future. And so adaptable to what's coming in the future obviously is very open-ended because neither you nor I have any precise idea of what that is. It sounds as though this is an unschooled perspective here, my good man. I know a decent amount about GPUs um, and about AI at a conceptual level that we need to sort of get a sense of what kinds of algorithms or what kinds of use cases, what kinds of essentially processing might happen on this chip and build something that we believe to be adaptable thereto. That by itself is a very vague definition, but I may have gotten it wrong. Can we go a bit deeper into kind of what that implies? Sure. And stepping up a level, 
one of the things that often happens when new technologies become available is people start to take advantage of what's available. An example is people used to use very sparse machine learning models. They would deploy them across a large number of servers, true at Amazon, true to a lot of other companies. And what happened was as they started getting devices that were capable of working with denser computes, which I'm not even going to try and define, but what ended up happening was people started using that denser compute. And so uh, when it comes to software defined, this element of flexibility where you, know, you, can, you can do what you want, you can take these new techniques and you can apply them, but it also means that researchers can experiment and see what they can do with these devices and come up with things themselves. So for example, we've seen that GPUs have been used a lot for machine learning. And the reason is, they have a lot of compute density, but their memory bandwidth is very slow. And this has been a bit of a problem. People thought that this would prevent very expensive machine learning models from continuing to get performance gains as you tweak them. But what happened was the researchers started to take advantage of that extra compute power. And what they would do is they would do a lot more compute per memory access. So in terms of the flexibility, it's not just that you're able to support things that the ML researchers have been doing in the past. It's also that they can explore and, and make better use of the hardware that you give them. Okay, so better use of the hardware that you give them. And you're, you're talking about, uh, in terms of dense compute, I think to myself when I think about GPUs, I think about use cases. You know, you're kind of referring to maybe different hardware that'd be better for different use cases. You know, we have a bunch of vision data. We hurl it through as many neural networks as we can and as many GPUs as we can. And, and that sort of setup seems to be sort of adequate for that kind of processing. Are there any maybe discrete cases where you can talk about different kinds of software-defined compute that might be even better than sort of this just brute force as many layers as we can hurl into that thing, a sort of GPU kind of approach? Is there a way that we can make this tangible to say, okay, here's a discrete instance in the business world where this software-defined game is better than GPUs? Sure. I've got, a, I've got a great example. So one of the unique features of the hardware that we're developing is that it takes advantage of something called batch size one. What that basically means is, do you remember playing the game 20 questions growing up? Uh, really, really roughly, yeah. Yeah. And so the way that game works is you have 20 questions, someone has a item in mind, a person in mind, and you ask questions where you get yes or no answers until you figure out what that item is. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, is, it, is it an animal? Yada, yada. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, I was talking about the density of the compute. And one of the things that's limiting for uh, the hardware today is that to get good use of it, Oftentimes, you have to run the same program at the same time on many different inputs. So imagine you're driving down the street and there are three stop signs. But to get really good performance, you really have to run on 64 stop signs in order to identify them and, and get that good performance. So if you have only three, it costs you the same as if you had 64. Well, now imagine you're playing the game 20 questions and you have 64 inputs that you're trying to guess. And so those questions have to be very complicated because you're not guessing what this one item is, you're guessing what these 64 items are. And so one of the things that's unique about the hardware that we're building and, and the software-defined hardware aspect of it is that it's not built for any particular model. You can change the kinds of models that run on it. And 
you can take advantage of this smaller batch size by breaking your models apart. And instead of playing the game of 20 questions on 64 different items at the same time, you can do it on one item at a time, which makes it much less expensive. So now you ask, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? And the answer isn't always yes, because you always have an animal, vegetable, and mineral. Got it. Okay. And now a, a way that that might translate into, like, let's say right now, as, as you speak, we have leaders in insurance, we have leaders in pharmaceutical, we have leaders in banking, we have leaders in heavy industry, we have leaders in a great many sectors tuning in with their ears to this episode. Do we have some sort of individual instances where this sort of animal, mineral, all present dynamic might translate into just better performance, whether it's lower energy or faster processing, um, than cranking themselves full of as much NVIDIA as they can buy? Well, let's say that you're trying to make a determination for a potential insurance client. So you're going to have a bit of information about the client, but if you run a model that has to take into account every possible bit of information about that client, then it's going to be a very large model. But if you can look at a little bit of information you have, like what information you actually do have about the client, and then pick a model that's sort of right-sized for that problem, it gets less expensive and it also gets more accurate. Another example would be if you're trying to build an autonomous car and you're driving down the road, you might identify that something is a tree or you might identify that something is a, a sign of some sort. You may not know that it's a stop sign. When you then are able to run a very particular model on that object, right? So you've got maybe 200 objects in the scene, but you have three signs. What it means is you can run a sign classifier on those three signs, and it's very specifically trained just to identify what those signs are. You can imagine also in strategy when you're trying to make predictions. So for example, the way that the AlphaGo model worked. As the game evolves, you can actually use different models, or if you believe that there are several different ways that the game could evolve, you could use several different models, some with a more aggressive play style, some with a less aggressive play style. And what it really does is it allows you to just try a whole bunch of very different things on the same hardware without having to have custom hardware for each of those different things. Got it. And so obviously this is advantageous given the fact that we don't exactly know what algorithms, what kinds of approaches are going to work, right? So having something that's potentially malleable in that regard might be useful because who the heck knows what algorithms are going to be hip and popular for natural language processing in four years. When you look ahead into industry, you look out into the world and you ask yourself, where is software-defined compute sort of gaining traction might be one side, but I realize a lot of AI hardware is, is in what we could describe as uh, exceedingly nascent phase. So maybe traction is too strong of a word, uh, but maybe we could talk about where where maybe it's getting the most pilots. Where do you see little kind of eking progress into into industries? Are there some spaces where this concept is sort of getting, getting held onto more tightly, getting adopted a little bit more quickly? Um, where do you see this kind of seeping in? Yeah, so we've had CPUs and, and GPUs for a long time, and these were programmable devices. Um, we've also had other types of devices like FPGAs, which are programmable, but not really while the thing is running. That's much more difficult. Where it's getting interesting is machine learning. And in particular, the, the reason is because machine learning is this open target where people don't know exactly where it's going to land. It's changing so quickly. And then in particular, where we're seeing uh, interest is in places where 
models are going to change quickly. So if you build a small consumer device, some sort of audio trigger, like a device that you know opens your door when you say something, that doesn't have to keep getting smarter. But when you deploy something in cloud or uh, at a hyperscaler or in an autonomous vehicle, because no one has a final formula for, for what those machine learning models are going to look like, they need to be able to update them and make changes. Additionally, people are still finding new uses for machine learning because it's such a new field. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we're seeing use cases all over the place, in part because even in those places where eventually the stuff will harden and, and it'll be fixed, right now, no one knows what that's going to look like. And that's a, that's a serious challenge, right? Because now my question, okay, where are the sectors where we're expecting this to really bite? Uh, I guess you can't give me a much better answer than the one you just gave me. Well. I think pretty much every sector. So if you want to, if you want to look at where machine learning is useful, uh, just look at any place where probabilistic decisions are made or difficult decisions. Um, this is very different from how software has worked historically. Yep, software yep, has yep. been, yeah. And so just ask yourself, where are you making difficult decisions? And then the other thing that machine learning does is it gives you this ability to have these two sort of paradoxical things at the same time. It allows you to have both repeatable performance, and it allows you to have creativity. If you have a machine learning model and you apply it to a problem, it will very often solve that problem, but it might solve it in ways that no one thought yep. that it would solve. Yeah, and I guess, is do you see software-defined computers as an extension of that same, I guess, creative capability? That's exactly right. So uh, machine learning researchers today are, are coming up with all sorts of ideas, and um, oftentimes, you'll see that the ideas are constrained by the hardware that they have. Yeah. And GPUs weren't designed for machine learning. They're okay at it because they're very parallel and they can do a lot of operations. But it's not how you would design such a device today. And so if you look at a lot of the machine learning models that have become popular, they've been optimized for the designs of today's GPUs. And so when you have a flexible device, um, you can handle those. But you can also handle the other stuff that the researchers are looking into and experimenting with. And it gives them the freedom to come up with new model architectures. And this is particularly important in the early days of machine learning because these things do, do become very fixed in industry early on. Yeah. And so by flexibility, it allows them to experiment before everything gets hardened and fixed. Yeah, I guess that's the challenge, right? Is there's in some sectors, there's already maybe a, a bit of hardening here around, like you said, this GPU world, you know, we are developing algorithms to work on that kind of hardware in a way that would would be best. We're not imagining, we're not reimagining hardware from the ground up, and then building an algorithm around that reimagined hardware. Uh, in many spaces, we're, we're simply sort of operating on top of whatever chipset we're working with that is getting the job done. And, you know, GPUs, as much as they may not have been built for machine learning, they're cutting the mustard, let's say, in a great many use cases. Um, and, and sort of to break away from that has its challenges. It sounds like what you're saying here around where software-defined compute um, sort of might be able to play its role is essentially anywhere where we need compute to do machine learning specifically. So it sounds like you don't have a strong inkling as it, as in something along the lines of, well, it seems as though pharmaceutical is way more open to leaving GPUs behind and doing this for XYZ reason. Or it seems like automotive is, you know, for these kinds of use cases, seems to already be pretty compelled to, to go software compute. It doesn't sound like there's any of those 
signals that you're picking up on and able to convey, it sounds more like, hey, Dan, wherever machine learning is what's happening with our compute resources, software-defined compute you know, has a, a good chance, a good swing of being able to step in and potentially do a better job as these technologies develop. It sounds like it really is that open-ended. Yeah, that, that's accurate. And uh, again, it's because no one knows exactly where the ML model architectures are going to go in the near future. Yeah. And then the other side of this that's interesting is historically, there are two types of industries or products. Those that if you get them to a certain capability, they're good enough. And then those where there's just this insatiable thirst for more. And compute is definitely an insatiable thirst. No one has ever in the history of compute said, I have enough compute, I'm good. Yep. So one of the interesting things is that we're so early on and people are just now unlocking the ability to do tasks with machine learning that weren't possible before that we've noticed every time there's an improvement, uh, every time the compute gets cheaper, every time the compute gets faster, every time the compute gets um, more energy efficient, people actually spend more not less. I believe about 7% of the world's power actually goes to powering data centers. And that's a really meteoric rise in terms of how much compute has grown in the world and how important it's become. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And so it's a sort of inflection point where we're at the beginning of machine learning and every time it improves, people want more of it. Interesting. Here's a final quick question I have as we wrap. It'll be curious to see where AI hardware sort of evolves in the next two to three years, never mind the next 10. As you sort of, you know, look forward at individual spaces or or sectors of kind of where the software compute dynamic is sort of heading, do you think that companies maybe like yourselves uh, or maybe like other people that are in this kind of alternative AI hardware uh, domain, do you think they will eventually begin specializing in specific Uh, sectors and spaces. In other words, you will have your software-defined compute vendor companies that start to cluster all of their use cases and their out-of-the-box stuff for life sciences or all their use cases and out-of-the-box stuff for certain vision applications. Do you think it'll go down like that? Obviously, right now it's it's so open because it could be anything, but I'm interested in, in if you think as it matures, that kind of focusing will be inevitable or not. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we focused on making such a flexible design was that it also makes it easier to program. And so in the long term, our hope is that people won't actually understand that it's software-defined compute underneath. The idea is that if you can adapt to the hardware, you can actually make it easier to program it. In fact, we started with the compiler. So I think what's going to happen in industry in terms of adoption is the first places that are going to use it are the places where They need the absolute greatest performance. And the existing architectures, the GPUs, just can't give it to them. And they're going to be able to eke out every little last bit of gain by tweaking the hardware to fit what they're trying to do. And over time, it's going to start to percolate through a whole bunch of other industries. But it's also interesting because people are actually using this thing called AutoML, which is using machine learning models to design machine learning models. And a recent result, EfficientNet, which was a model that was trained by models, outperforms all human-designed models. So what that means is, if you have a very flexible piece of hardware, the way that people are training these machine learning models, or the way that they're generating them, the structure of them and, and, and the shapes, can actually take better advantage of that hardware. 
is this maybe a pocket where you see software-defined compute really running forward? Are you kind of hinting at AutoML maybe being kind of a, a potential sweet spot for this kind of hardware overhaul as well? Well, AutoML is very quickly becoming the norm in machine learning. It's just that it has a, a pretty significant advantage when it has the ability to reconfigure the hardware. And then the other interesting part about this is we can actually reconfigure the hardware while it's running very rapidly. And so that allows training of models and it allows the running of models where the hardware actually changes from one portion of the execution to another portion of it. So at the beginning, it might look one way and at the end, it might look another way. Well, I guess only time will tell, uh, Jonathan, as to whether or not sort of this new dynamic fits its way into AutoML or, or th that these changes in sort of how machine learning approaches are evolving also bring about the same kind of changes in hardware, but at least the audience is a little bit more up to snuff on what those future vistas might be. I know that we're up on time, but Jonathan, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share some of your thoughts about software-defined compute with us here on AI and Industry. Sure, and thanks for having me. So that's all for this episode with Jonathan Ross of Grok. That's G-R-O-Q for those of you who are looking to spell it. Again, Jonathan's one of the speakers at the Edge AI Summit put on by Kasako Research that's taking place from November 20th to 21st here this year in 2019. If you're interested in how to reach our audience, obviously we are not a good fit for all companies, but firms that meet our criteria are able to actually work with us. Um, and if you're interested in learning how people come to advertise on these episodes and run sponsored episodes, you can learn more at emerge.com, that's E-M-E-R-J.com slash advertise. You can learn about our sponsored content guidelines, who we'll work with, who we won't work with, and the kinds of work that we do. Hopefully this episode was a fun spin-off bonus episode for those of you who are our listeners. Make sure to stay tuned in for next Tuesday as we keep rolling with this month's theme of AI and industry, which is the ROI of AI. So that's it for this bonus episode, and I'll catch you on Tuesday. Thank you.